Welcome to April's JNMP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. Coming up this month, how best to support patients just diagnosed with multiple sclerosis who are facing difficult decisions regarding their treatment. From our experience, physicians, um, healthcare professionals, and maybe also patients try to focus on on certainties. focus on what can I do, what drug should I take, and what this mean to me then, so what would be the effect. But of course we know that multiple sclerosis um, has a lot of uncertainties. But first, now we're going to be looking at a new way of looking at the cognitive and behavioural changes in neurodegeneration. Previously we've been thinking about these in terms of cortical changes, but a new review in JNMP suggests that we should be focusing on the striatum. The uh, lead author of the review, Michael Hornberger, who's at the Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Cambridge, joins me on the line now. So good morning, Michael. Hello. First up, could you give us a few examples and and talk us through the the range of disorders that you looked at and what are the the cognitive and behavioural changes that we see with these? As you mentioned already in your introduction, so previously we've really seen much more the cortex as being responsible for behavioral and cognitive changes. But I guess this notion is really changing and uh, there are many kind of different diseases which of course classically been more associated with subcortical or striatal changes like Parkinson's disease or Huntington's disease. And uh, these Diseases have been more associated with striatal degeneration that they uh, cause motor symptoms. And those motor symptoms are very often, of course, joined by uh, behavioral changes or cognitive changes in those diseases. However, really, one doesn't know how these kind of striatal changes contribute to the behavioral or cognitive changes in those diseases as well. There is a lot of new literature coming from the more functional neuroimaging literature, which shows that for lots of cognitive and behavioral processes, there is an interaction actually happening between cortical regions and the subcortical regions, and in particular the striatum. And this really then questions whether in the patients we actually have so far underestimated really the contributions of the striatal changes to their cognitive or behavioral presentation. And we have so far focused maybe uh, mainly on the cortical changes, but we need therefore also to take into account the striatal changes. And does that make anatomical sense as well? Yes, so anatomically it has been actually uh, known for a very long time since the end of 19th century, beginning of 20th century, that the cortex and the subcortex are very strongly linked by uh, white matter tracts. However, again, we didn't know until recently how these, how they functionally actually interact. So we know that structurally these, these two components are very strongly linked. And as I said, um, people have more thought about in terms of motor, that the motor system, so it was long, known for a long time that there is an interaction between the cortex and the striatum, but actually not for cognition and behavior. And then what were the specifically the, the disorders that you looked at and, and what are the presentations that you that you mentioned? Yeah, so we looked across a range of disorders. It was actually quite tricky decision to decide because um, our focus was mainly on neurodegenerative disorders. But again, you have, of course, a, a plethora of, of different conditions. 
Uh, instead, we focused, we thought better on three um, conditions which have known subcortical changes and three conditions where this has been less explored. And the three conditions which more really with well-described striatal dysfunction are Parkinson's disease, progressive supranuclear palsy, and Huntington's disease. Now, what's missing, and it was pointed out by the reviewers as well, is of course cortical basal degeneration, which has been always associated also with the triatal changes, but we left it deliberately out um, because the underlying pathology in cortical basal degeneration is so variable that at the moment we were not confident to actually discuss it because it has lots, it can have very different underlying pathologies. So we deliberately left this out, which is actually one of the most prominent conditions that has striatal changes, which I think will be very interesting in the future to see actually how these striatal changes will change how we can diagnose cortical basal degeneration. But going back to the diseases we discussed, Parkinson's disease and progressive supranuclear palsy and Huntington's disease, of course, all have in common that they have very specific motor symptoms and features. And again, these have been associated with striatal changes, where in Parkinson's disease, you have more um, dorsal striatal changes, which cause a lot of the motor symptoms in these patients. However, very interestingly, in the recent years, because um, Parkinson's disease is, of course, caused by dopamine depletion, and the drugs which have been given to Parkinson's disease basically flood the brain with dopamine. And this has an interesting effect on the ventral striatal regions, where this can cause them severe behavioral issues, and these patients can start uh, having actually problems in terms of disinhibition, impulsivity, which can even lead to gambling. So this is caused by the medication, which boosts the whole system. And this gave a really first idea that the striatum itself might have an enormous input on the behavioral changes in those patients. Now, for progressive supranuclear palsy, it's been long known that it has changes in both the cortex and subcortical regions, but really nobody has so far delineated how, which are the main contributors of the symptoms, are they specific for certain symptoms? And we're only at the starting point really for that. Um, Huntington's disease, I guess, is a bit better described. And it's really known Huntington's disease to be uh, primarily a deficit in the chordate of the striatum. And this, of course, causes, again, this very particular presentation of, of Huntington's disease in terms of their motor symptoms. But these patients also show severe uh, behavioral changes, which can be sometimes overshadowed by these very severe motor changes. So these patients can have a lot of mood disturbances, like anxiety or depression, but can also have a lot of impulsivity. And clinicians very often describe it as if um, the, the chordate in Huntington's disease, like the break, which regulates it with the prefrontal cortex, and the break is basically gone, and therefore they become very, very impulsive. Now, the three other conditions we looked at, which so far have been much less described striatal dysfunction, are motor neuron disease, frontotemporal dementia, and Alzheimer's disease. And motor neuron disease um, is interesting because people, of course, it's a very uh, motor system type disease, but striatal changes have not been that regularly described in motor neuron disease. And in our review of the literature, what we found is that more the patients who have extrapyramidal changes, actually, that they're more likely to have uh, striatal changes. Now, very interestingly, there is a paper in neurology by Ola Hardiman's group, which only came out, I think, last month, 
where they describe actually basal ganglia involvement in uh, MND and they look more systematically across a large group of patients and they actually show that most patients can really show some uh, basal ganglia or striatal changes. So this suggests that this, is, um, this has been maybe under-recognized in motor neuron disease so far and really needs to be investigated much further. Now, interesting in that context is, of course, the link also between MND and FTD, frontotemporal dementia, which is becoming much stronger with all the genetic and pathological evidence linking these two diseases. And frontotemporal dementia, there is now a lot of evidence, actually, recent evidence coming up that uh, the striatum is severely affected in those patients. Frontotemporal dementia, of course, is more characterized by uh, behavioral or language problems in particular, behavioral problems have been more associated with the prefrontal cortex. They have very substantial prefrontal cortex changes and atrophy. However, these new studies show that also the striatum is severely affected in the disease and from very early on. Now, we don't know, of course, this is like a chicken and egg question. Uh, is the pre, are the prefrontal cortex changes first or the striatal changes first? Or do they affect each other? Is it just basically that one affects the other region and therefore it's a knock-on effect, I guess, of, of one region being affected? And I guess this would be really one of the, the future things people will be looking at, how longitudinally these kind of regions change and, again, how to delineate the contributions of these different regions to the, the, the severe behavioral symptoms in frontotemporal dementia. Now, finally, Alzheimer's disease, and this is quite interesting because in Alzheimer's disease, of course, it's usually associated with a lot of cortical changes, in particular in temporal lobes, but these days it's also more recognized for the parietal lobes. And what we found in the review of the literature, there is very little uh, in terms of basal ganglia or striatal changes. These patients are usually intact in, in those small subcortical regions. Now, we're talking here about very typical Alzheimer's disease presentation, so um, I'm not talking about, as I said, cortical basal degeneration who has underlying Alzheimer's pathology, and that would be, again, interesting in the future to look at. However, there has been a study by Martin Ross's group, I think, at Queen Square, where they looked at genetic Alzheimer's disease cases, and they actually showed that these cases had some basal ganglia changes, which are then different to the more sporadic Alzheimer's disease, where it's very, very rare to, to occur. Right. There's some interesting examples there. Was there enough evidence for you to draw out some common themes and to be able to start to delineate what is what are the changes coming from the cortex and, and you know what's the striatal contribution? Yes, this is the main question we have now. So our review was mostly really more doing a review, a descriptive review of all the evidence so far. So really to synthesize this information, this is really now the next step. And uh, if you go back to the literature, to the animal literature or to the functional neuroimaging literature, what you notice is that the striatum itself might not have that much input in computing or in generating behaviors. This is mainly done by the cortical regions where all the motor programs or behavioral programs are computed. However, what it does, it modulates the input it gets from the cortex and sends it back. So it creates like a feedback loop to the cortex for different regions and different functions. And this modulation uh, has, of course, enormous impact because therefore it has a kind of gate function. So it can let 
some input from the cortex back through the cortex or it can stop. And you can see how this makes sense across a lot of different symptoms where, where there might be an initiation from the cortex and then this might be modulated either by being stopped or amplified in the subcortical or striatal regions. And with this, you can really see that this makes sense, for example, for apathy, where people don't initiate anymore, where there might still happening an initiation program from the cortex, but maybe the striatum does not let this through, or the exact opposite in terms of disinhibition or impulsivity, where all the kind of impulses, all the behavioral programs from the cortex get even more amplified in the striatum, and therefore people behave in a very impulsive or disinhibited way. Now, as I said, we don't know yet really how, how this really works in neurodegeneration, but this is what the animal literature and what the functional medicine literature is leading to. So it really boils down to how behavior is initiated, maintained, and stopped in a way, and that this modulation of those factors is really regulated by the striatum and therefore can have an impact on a, across a lot of this, the behavioral symptoms. What would you like to see done now then? How do you see the research progressing to, to go about synthesizing this information and, and further delineating this problem? I mean, much of your uh, review reads as a call to arms. Could you talk us through that section? What we really would like is to know, again, how does this modulation actually work? So, so far, there are no diagnostic tests who really specifically tap into this striatal dysfunction. Can we develop those tests, which um, I think would be really, could be very sensitive for detecting how these regions might contribute to the behavioral uh, presentation of the patient and could explain many of the symptoms which at the moment are seen as very separate. Now, these diagnostic tests, of course, could help them in diseases, for example, um, distinguishing much better frontotemporal dementia in particular, who has these very significant striatal changes in Alzheimer's disease sporadic Alzheimer's disease who does not seem to have these triadal changes. So diagnostically, this would be very interesting to contrast the two diseases just on the striatal integrity because you would expect that frontotemporal dementia would be severely affected while Alzheimer's disease should be intact even though they both have pretty cortical changes. So tests tapping specifically into the striatal dysfunction would be very important diagnostically. And then, of course, also for tracking the disease over time and how any disease-modifying therapies might actually affect that. Now, even for the well-known um, diseases who have subcortical changes like Parkinson's and Huntington's disease, again, the behavioral contributions to those diseases are really not that well understood. And in Parkinson's disease, it's mostly attributed to dopamine, the dopamine medication. However, we have now several studies which actually indicate that dopamine only plays one role in this and that really also cell loss in the striatum and the prefrontal cortex can cause these behavioral changes even when patients are matched for medication levels. So that means that there are some Parkinson's patients who have maybe a higher prevalence of developing behavioral symptoms with dopamine therapy, which I think really needs to be taken much more into account. Now, the thing with Huntington's disease is really how can we help those patients? Uh, the focus is really there much more um, on how can we better describe these behavioral changes and how can we help actually 
medicate those changes in the future. And again, it would be very important, therefore, to, to look longitudinally across many diseases to see how they, uh, how they actually change and when are these cycle changes occurring, when are the cortical changes occurring, and how do they interact with each other. Great. So there are plenty of avenues there for looking at diagnostics and for, for guiding treatment as well. Definitely, definitely. There's enormous scope. Uh, as I said, so far, the literature has been very cortical-centered, and one can say it's nearly horizontal. It looks always between cortical-cortical interactions of regions, while this kind of vertical direction of looking at cortex versus subcortex and how this might influence symptoms, presentations, and might uh, regulate the, kind of the whole cortical computations of behavior or motor symptoms has been really not that much investigated. Sure. Well, hopefully we've got some researchers listening and uh, in a few years we'll see another one of your reviews where you've got a nice burgeoning literature to, uh, to look at. That would be fantastic. Yes, I agree. Great. Well, Michael, thank you very much for, for publishing your paper with JNMP and for, for telling us more about it. Thank you. And as ever, that paper is available for free on jnmp.bmj.com. Find it in April's edition. The other paper we've picked from this edition looks at how best to support informed decision making in those who've just been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I spoke to lead author Sasha Kirpke from the University of Lübeck and began by asking him what the uncertainties these patients face are. Actually, um, talking about um, early multiple sclerosis and talk, talking about uncertainties, this is probably not the major focus of what, what patients are confronted with. From our experience, physicians, um, healthcare professionals, and maybe also patients try to focus on, on certainties. Um, mm focus on what can I do, what drug should I take, and what uh, would this mean to me then, so what would be the effect. But of course we know that, that multiple sclerosis um, has a lot of uncertainties, and these uncertainties, um, of course, are, um, are very important. And um, so at the beginning of the disease, there is not really much um, indication um, we have in, in most patients to have an outlook really um, realistic outlook on uh, on the prognosis of the disease so they of course are faced with uh, the question should I start um, a treatment what kind of treatment should I start very uh, important criteria for the for the decision of course is to to have an idea about the prognosis also of course um, uncertainty remains about um, the effects of uh, of the therapy because um, as in most therapies uh, also here it is only um, partially effective and um, there, there are probably uh, patients who will have an effect um, from from drug therapy, but uh, most likely um, most patients or the majority of patients who take the drugs um, won't have an effect. So um, this, of course, um, is a very important uncertainty which healthcare professionals are not usually, at least uh, not in, in Germany, um, but we, we know uh, we have other data from around the world, of course, are not too keen to communicate in a realistic way because, uh, of course, they fear that um, patients might not be compliant or might not um, start on a drug um, therapy. 
most um, people have heard about multiple sclerosis and most people, of course, um, have the picture of a person in a wheelchair mm. in front of them when, when they think about multiple sclerosis. And this, of course, is, is a very, uh, is one part, part of uh, the information that um, this is not a realistic picture that because we, we have such a um, diverse uh, picture of um, of prognosis and of disease causes. Sure. And, and do you think that poor communication around um, treatment outcomes and, and misconceptions about the disease course, do you think that affects adherence? Do you have particularly poor levels of adherence in, in early MS? Yes, we know that uh, adherence is poor and um, low adherence is always a problem, but um, of course, especially in um, in MS with these therapies, which are quite expensive, and um, also it means patients really have to um, have to give themselves injections and things. The information that is given to the patients in terms of trying to um, enhance the the effectiveness uh, or the proposed effectiveness of um, of the drug therapies um, is given in in a very simplistic way, saying, okay, if you take this drug, you will be better, um, and if you don't take this drug, you will be worse. This is done because um, healthcare professionals fear that if patients understand um, the partial effectiveness of the drug and understand that their prognosis is not as clear as they might think, um, that then they uh, they might not adhere. Yeah, yeah. Tell us a bit about the the programs because you had two that you randomized um patients mm-hmm. to. So what did they consist of? What did patients actually go through? Mhm. The the program we we have developed here is the consequence of uh, of other programs we've done uh, for people with MS uh, before. We had two interventions. Um the information interventions consist of a concise brochure giving um, information about prognosis, what do we know about prognosis, what are um, important uh, prognostic factors, about the diagnosis, of course, um, what do we know, what what does the diagnosis tell us and what are the criteria um, for diagnosis and how um, how strong um, are they, how, how valid are they, and, and then information about early therapy, what drugs are they, what are the effectiveness. An important point is that um, this information is using the criteria of uh, so-called evidence-based patient information, giving clear numbers, giving absolute numbers, saying 10 out of 100 will have an effect within two years and not saying you will be better if you if you yeah. take this drug. And then um, after people received this brochure, they um, came together for this uh, four-hour education program, which was not done by, by a physician but uh, by a non-medical person to uh, to prevent the the white coat effect yeah, mm. because we want the evidence to speak and not not the experts to speak and um, the main point here is to allow um, participants to discuss things to learn from the experiences um, from other participants so there are um, quite a number of interactive um, aspects here also we we really go into decision making and see how does everyone decide what are the the components when I make a decision what uh, constitutes the decision this is um, very important and another point is that we um, in this four hours so it's quite a short program talked quite intensely about uh, MRI um, so so imaging um, because all the uh, the people with MS um, they, they, they see their, their, their images um, 
quite regularly, but um, many people really don't don't know what to, to make out of them. The other program was, so this was a control intervention then, we also send them information in advance. Um, these were standard information, the same, same number of pages, so information that we took from the um, MS Health Help organization in Germany, which are definitely not evidence-based. Uh, they try to, to focus on adherence and try to give positive information. And, and then um, they came together for a four-hour um, coping uh, and um, stress avoidance program, which was a uh, program that was there before, which had been evaluated successfully. Right. Okay. So, so your intervention program was very much focused on evidence-based intervention and helping patients make informed choices, whilst the the control one was more about you know coping with the with the stress of, and the anxiety around the diagnosis. Yes, that's true. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then um, you followed. You had twelve months of, of follow up, and all in all, you had one hundred and ninety two patients, which were uh, across six centres. So what were your your primary and your secondary outcomes that you measured over that 12 months? So the the primary outcome, as I said, was uh, informed choice. This concept of informed choice consists of um, three aspects, really. One is information, and then it looks at um, at the congruency between my preference so what do I want to do after um, I um, get some information and the real uptake? That means um, do I do what I preferred? It's really hard for um, for people with MS to, um, their physicians want to convince them um, and really push them on mm. starting an immunotherapy. So this this is uh, the more problematic situation. So mm. these were the, uh, the main endpoints here. Could you just give us the the headline messages from from your results? What are the the big things that you you picked out of all of that? Mm-hmm. We had a huge effect, um, you must say, mm. in, in terms of in, informed uh, choice. There were um, nearly sixty percent of participants in the intervention group, and only twenty uh, percent of participants in the control group who showed informed choice, although, and this is very, very important uh, limitation, of course, of this construct is that um, these results mostly depend really on, on knowledge because, uh, as I said, there are three components there and um, you can influence uh, each of the components and then uh, mm. increase informed choice and uh, the main component here was really knowledge. And um, so what we what we saw, of course, is um, that participants in the intervention group had more, had better risk knowledge than um, the ones in the control group. Um, in terms of adherence, these were, were non-significant um, results, but what we saw, we also saw um, a difference, although just a trend, in terms of uh, adherence, in terms of immunotherapy status uh, of participants. So we saw that in the intervention group there were um, less participants that, that started on immunotherapy, but uh, from the ones who started on immunotherapy there were more who adhered. So this is, um, I guess, an important result because well, we can at least um, hint that the intervention, that more information leads to um, more informed choices, of course, and this more informed choices may then lead to more adherence because people know what they have decided about. 
or in the in the extreme people have decided at all and um in the other hand um they might have not um decided because um the the physicians the healthcare professionals have decided for them and this is another um mm. result that we've um, we found in terms of autonomy preferences participants in the intervention group uh, wanted to make uh, more autonomous decisions so um, this also is a is a result which is important i think because that means that through more information people feel uh, enabled to be more involved to really have a say in uh, in decision making great so it seems like a very positive intervention then you're improving patients knowledge or helping them make an informed choice and being more participatory in in their um, in their treatment is that your take on it is this something that you'll be continuing in your your practice yes at the um, the ms clinic where this was developed at the university of hamburg part of the the, um, the program there for the uh, MS patients so everyone with a new diagnosis um, gets this and there are a few other clinics that also have taken this on we're now at the moment um, doing another trial um, before they have the final um, decision um, consultation with the physician um, they see um, a decision coach this might be a very um, suitable addition to to such a program um, to have someone to really discuss the evidence and really discuss the decision making. Well, Sasha, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for telling us about the paper. Okay, thanks very much. That's all for this month. Next time, I'll be finding out about deep brain stimulation in essential tremor and genetic counselling for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Come back then.